0: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Poppy, producer of The London. Before we kickstart today's show, I wanted to let you know about The London Christmas Quiz on the 16th of December at the London School of Architecture. The evening, which will take the form of a panel-style quiz show you may recognise from a popular satirical TV programme, will feature LSA's Chief Executive Neil Shasor and design tutor Holly Harrington, pitted against architecture critic and favourite of the London Kath Slesser and the comedian-slash-songwriter Jay Foreman. To find out more and to book your tickets, go to open-city.org.uk forward slash events. Now on with the show.
1: Bank of England warns the cladding crisis could undermine UK financial stability. Planet Organics' arrival in Broadway Market sparks a row over gentrification. Plans for new homes within a Southwark housing estate are met with backlash from residents. And the six mega design teams vying to transform a tiny Bermondsey pocket park. My name is Zoe Cave, I work at Open City and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week is Patricia Brown. Patricia Brown is Director of the Built Environment Consultancy Central. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Delighted to be here.
1: The Bank of England has warned of the risk posed by the ongoing cladding crisis to the UK's overall financial stability. It's a story which has been covered in the Financial Times. The ongoing crisis prompted by the Grenfell tragedy in 2017 has so far revealed that there are countless high rise buildings. Up and down the country, clad in highly dangerous materials. Um, it's estimated that around 670,000 people are currently living in buildings with combustible cladding. This not only endangers their lives, but for the many leaseholders, it renders their homes practically unsellable until the cladding is removed. The government has pledged £5 billion to remove unsafe cladding from the most at risk buildings, which it classes as those taller than 18 metres high. This £5 billion fund will be paid for in part by a levy on large developers, which was announced by the Chancellor in the recent budget that we covered a few episodes ago on the London. But this sum is just a tenth of the £50 billion Colmore Tang Construction, a Midlands-based cladding specialist estimates to be the true cost of replacing all dangerous cladding in the UK. So, for some context, £50 billion equates to one-third of the annual output of the whole construction industry. Now, the Prudential Regulation Authority, the Bank of England's body responsible for supervising banks, has raised concerns that it believes the government has yet to grasp the full scale of the crisis. It expects that the costs to mortgage lenders will be far larger than those outlined so far. Property owners in these at-risk buildings are now faced with enormous bills to either fix uh, defects or maintain temporary fire safety measures. And without a full costing, which is what enables valuers to assess the worth of the property, lenders are unable to issue mortgages on those homes. So this is what the Prudential Regulation Authority is warning. And as many leaseholders struggle with escalating fire safety costs, the PRA worries their ability to meet mortgage payments could be sacrificed, potentially triggering a wave of defaults, which ultimately may lead to unsellable flats falling into the hands of the developers. So Pat, what's this all about? Why is the cladding crisis such a big deal for the leaseholders and the property sector?
2: It's a massive issue and there's a whole range of things that I think are packed up in, in this story. You know, obviously, there was a, the tragedy of Grenfell, which shone a, a spotlight on building safety, and what the industry and these reviews have actually widened out to is to look at wider uh, safety issues, not just about cladding, and but things like fire doors and a whole host of building practices. And frankly, the it's been the construction sector has been found wanting in the way that buildings have been built over a period of years, partly down some, many would say down to very poor regulation. And as a consequence of this, and because the net has widened uh, to so many homes in, in, in high rise buildings with so many people involved, that represents a huge amount of money to the lenders, to the mortgage um, lenders in this country, whether it's banks or building societies. And add to that the further issue about the blame culture that has set up around this, because let's face it, there's an awful lot of blame happening through Grenfell. There's been a doubling down um, amongst the people who are. Um, who are responsible for licensing and giving the sort of the, the the OK to buildings to be safe? So as a consequence, the lack of people, the risk aversion to them, means the number of buildings, the number of, of flats that are deemed that are still waiting to be assessed or deemed unsafe, is really significant. Mm. That means there's an awful lot of people, as you've already said, who can't sell those places and, and, you know, for a whole raft of reasons, their lives are just shredded. So it's a quality of life issue and a mental health issue for many people, as well as a, as a built environment issue.
1: I suppose also so much of buying a house is that, as we've shown um, since the 2008 crashes, that property prices just go up. It's the most, it's the the savviest, wisest thing you can do with your money, and you sort of this promise of home, home ownership. Yeah, sure.
2: and and actually, it's sort of it's taken the Thatcher promise of you know your home of your own, and many yeah. of these people have bought into into um, into flats in uh, former council blocks. And, you know, which are the ones who are particularly, some of them are particularly badly affected. And so their promise of a home of their own and that dream has has actually been completely um, dismantled. My
1: interpretation is that this seems to have pivoted from a cladding scandal to a cladding crisis um, as soon as it started to more explicitly affect the UK's financial market. Um, So how and why are we in a situation where residential property prices are such a big part of the UK financial stability.
2: You know, they're an asset class which people lend against. Mm. Um, It may be, you know, there's the variety of asset classes like stocks and shares. And, you know, many of our pensions, for example, are invested. Most of the high proportion of our pension funds are invested in real estate. We need real estate to perform for us in order to get the returns on investment in order to create um, that pot of money that then gets divvied up within our pensions. Yeah. So housing and, and commercial real estate or industrial real estate is all part and parcel of the, the merry-go-round, the money-go-round that makes our economy work. Um, so that's that's the, the main reason I, I think it's, it's become... A crisis, But as I've already said, this is no longer a cladding crisis, this is a crisis of safety and it's a crisis of confidence in the industry and it points to a whole range of wider issues like the, the aforementioned government being asleep on uh, the wheel in terms of the actual um, ensuring that compliance was, was correct. It also points to the wider issues of sort of lack of investment in the right things in, in our buildings and our built environment.
1: This leads us on to how long this has it been going on for. So the cladding crisis has been going on for over four years now. Um, what is the way out of this? So we've heard about kind of a culture shift a through collaboration In the government's autumn budget, Rishi Sunak announced a new residential property developers tax, which they hope will raise two billion over the next decade. What are your thoughts on this being the right move to get industry to pay for
2: the problem? Um, I think industry is accepting it has to step up to the plate, but it's a societal issue. It's, you know, it's what I pointed out earlier on, really, which is it points to a variety of things about dash to the bottom. If we don't if we don't have a proper conversation about what good looks like and how we fund good, the right way of building things, if everything is, is in, in the supply chain is, is just um subbed out left, right, and center, and costs are completely sort of hidden in there. You know, that gives an awful lot of points where things can go wrong. So so I think. We have to take a great more, we have to take more responsibilities as a society. I think the government have to take more responsibility and have some more honesty in this. So I I don't think it should entirely be laid. uh, the, The cost of this should be entirely laid at the industry's door.
1: From your perspective, Pat, what sort of precedent do you think that this sets for other problems like climate change? Um, which could be offset through targeted taxation on on big industry offenders
2: um well that's the polluter praise principle and i think the two things are not the same um you know you you should we should be asking people who are who are actually responsible for some of the um worst issues in our society to put them right whether that's climate change or or building safety but equally um We also have to invest in what we need in the future. It's a a theme that is going through everything I've just said, really. So it's what what do we have to invest in as a a society? What is the issue about taxation, whether that's the conversation that's been going on about social care and NHS? Mm -hmm. What what should come out of general taxation and what should come out of targeted taxation is something that um, has to be worked through.
0: Thank you for supporting The London by listening, subscribing and sharing the show. Open City is a charity best known for the Open House Festival, but also for our tours, education programmes and events. This show, along with the festival and schools programmes, are free because we believe everyone should have access to the tools and resources to learn about and experience our built environment. To keep this show free for everyone, we rely on those of you who can afford it to donate the equivalent of one coffee per month. If this is you, please go to open-city.org.uk forward slash flatwhite to donate and help keep these conversations accessible, inclusive and honest. Last week, Stephanie Farmer signed up. Thank you. If you're not in a position to donate, then keep supporting us by listening and sharing amongst your friends and colleagues.
1: London supermarket chain Planet Organic has responded to a local backlash over its soon-to-be-open Broadway Market Store. It is a story that has so far been covered by the Hackney Gazette and other local titles. The new store, which is due to open on the 14th of December, has prompted a pushback from some in the local community who, five months ago, launched a petition calling on local authority Hackney Council to block the shop from opening. The petition, which so far has accrued more than 3,500 signatures, highlights worries that the company will threaten and potentially outcompete the existing ecosystem of shops and small businesses on the famously hip thoroughfare, most of which are independent and family run. Min Suku, a local family business owner, expressed concern about the size of the Planet Organic store, saying, quote, Once those independent shops start to close, you lose the whole essence of the road. What will be next? A McDonald's? Another neighbouring business owner said, quote, There's no need for another organic shop. 50% of my produce is organic, and I'm not hopeful about what will happen to my business. Planet Organic buying director Al Overton responded to this backlash by saying, quote, If I'm honest, I feel personally hurt and surprised by the petition. It's not a reception that we've ever had before when we've opened sites. Every time we've opened a store, it has been seen as... A gift to the community. While the petition described the store as, quote, a huge chain, Overton went on to say that he has always viewed Planet Organic as a small London based retailer, pointing out that the Broadway market site will be its 14th outlet. Overton elaborated by saying the retailer would strive to collaborate with the community through a number of initiatives and partnerships, including in-store collections for the local food bank, selling some locally made products and will begin working with Hackney Council to provide internships, mentorships and apprenticeship schemes to children with learning disabilities from local schools. He continued saying, quote, I do understand the fear of competition but there's a huge mixture of businesses on Broadway market. Some are small and independent and some are massive. It's a vibrant community street. So Pat, Hackney is quite a borough of extremes. You have the trendy, wealthy side, which Planet Organic no doubt caters for, but you also have the high levels of poverty. For example, 48% of children in Hackney are classed as being in poverty after housing costs, compared to the London average of 37%. Um, And it also has one of the highest rates of households in temporary accommodation. So what's your reaction to the store opening are Planet Organic a good addition to the market that will help bolster local business? Or do you think the objectors have a point and it will muscle out an already struggling community there?
2: There's been so much change over Broadway market. And I bet some of those you know, very trendy restaurants and coffee shops and the, and the current organic store didn't have a group of people in those marginalised communities actually getting up a petition Against them opening and taking away the places that they might have found cheaper to go to, so I think the bottom line here is about how you manage change, and how do you ensure within that change that in a really mixed, diverse community, and and you know right across inner London, this is an issue of cheap by jowl of, of people who have got wealth and incomes creating even more demand for, for amenities that serve that wealth. Living next to people who've got either very poor, in some cases, as you've already mentioned, depending on food banks. And, and so, therefore, I think the knob of this is how do we actually ensure that London provides for that mixed community? And I don't think you do that by getting up a petition to complain about a new store entering, you need to do it by taking a whole range of wider sort of interventions to make sure that the needs of everyone are served. And so much of the change in London was predicated on what we call the urban renaissance, where we wanted people to come into, the, um, into inner London, into inner cities, and invest in those, but what we didn't do and it goes back to the earlier article in a way is manage that in a way where we created an ecology of development and intensification and place and amenity and i think of it as that we did the urban renaissance and we forgot to say when and we haven't we haven't really um created places which are um the right blend and that then i think takes us to the gentrification word because gentrification becomes a bad word when people are designed out and and displaced. You know, what is that sweet spot between regeneration and renewal and the the sort of the flip side of, of gentrification?
1: So next question is we're just gonna go down the road a little bit down to Shoreditch, where a new development sparked a Twitter storm last week when Gucci revealed its transformation of David Adjay's Dirty House. Um, What do these examples show about gentrification in the area? For anyone who hasn't seen it, this is the fairly iconic Gucci print that looks like it's just been, like, wallpapered on the exterior of a building.
2: Well, it's Redchurch Street, isn't it? And that's, again, been an area of shift ever since in 2008. um, Terence Conran opened the Boundary Hotel and, and I think it, it turned the light switch on that and on all circus and what was happening around there. Anyway, turned a spotlight on the street as as people investors started to realize it was where the inverted commas term you used earlier, the hipsters wanted to go, and value could be extracted. And there was an interesting article I quote in some of my talks. In the Financial Times about four or five years ago about Redchurch Street, and it was an article praising the 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 Mayfair uh, level values, property values, that were um, being achieved in Redchurch Street, and and so this was seen as a good thing. And then in the same paper, the same weekend, Jeanette Winterson was bemoaning the fact that she was having to close her general store down in fields because the the rate increase and the gentrification of the area pushed her rent up so much she could no afford, longer afford to be there and and it's a theme that i just keep coming back to is which is how do we get this blend right and how do we ensure that places don't go over and um and and therefore i think we should look more to values rather than value in places. So speaking to Gucci about the Gucci thing, again it's one not one I can get terribly excited over because it's the next it's the next ratchet up of what is happening to the area anyway. It's an area that is already used extensively for fashion shoots and some might see it as a real sort of um stamp of success on the area that Gucci feel that they need to be there. The question is, what's it going to do in terms of pricing out my hairdresser that's on Redchurch Street? Um, you know, if, if more people want to, of that level of, um, of covenant value, want to crowd into the area. Southwark Council
1: has approved plans by the acclaimed architects Cottrell and Vermillion to infill a South London estate despite fierce opposition from existing residents. This is a story that was reported by the AJ this week. The scheme involves uh, building eight new homes on a patch of green space within the existing 89-home post-war Kingston estate in Woolworth. This plan forms part of Southwark's Greater House Building Strategy, which aims to deliver 11,000 new homes across the borough by 2043. According to Southwark News, a local paper, 53 sites have so far been earmarked for infill development. Infill schemes, uh, the development of vacant or underutilised sites, are sometimes an alternative to full-scale estate regenerations, but they are uh, facing an increasing level of backlash across London. This is often from residents who stress the importance of community amenities and valued green space, which they argue ought to be protected, not built over. Residents of the Kingston estate have submitted more than 40 objections to the scheme, pointing out the space was well used by the wider estate as space for play and allotments. One resident wrote, quote, Not only is the surrounding area already very dense, but the space marked for infill on our estate is very small. Building there would strip our community of the already rather modest green space we use for gardening and relaxation. In a letter supporting the Kingston estate residents, Green Party Assembly member Berry argued that the COVID-19 pandemic had shown the importance of green space. She said, quote, the mental and physical benefits of green space are invaluable, particularly for residents like these who live in flats. Building over this front garden would have a negative impact on well-being. of and Vermillion co-founder Richard Cotrol said in a statement that the scheme would reinstate the planting beds and create a new play area on the corner of East Street, accessible from a new landscaped courtyard. He went on to also argue that the scheme would deliver a number of benefits to the wider estate – including improvements to the existing play space between Richmond House and Marshall House, new planting beds and new trees. Stephanie Cryan from Southwark Council said that with the 16,000 people on its housing register, it was exploring every potential way to build as many council homes as it can. She said, We understand that some residents have raised concerns, and so we have committed to carrying out further engagement to ensure that residents' wishes are reflected in the improvements we would make to the overall estate. She added, We look forward to continuing to work with residents here to provide desperately needed new homes for our community. So, Pat, what's this all about? Why are infill projects increasingly important and commonplace, given the social justice and climate change crisis facing London? But also, why are they proving so controversial?
2: Gosh, this is a tricky one, because overall, I think Southwark is a really good borough. You know, the the heart of this is what Stephanie said, which is that they are trying to build council homes to reduce their their waiting list. They've they've committed to building 11,000 new homes, um, and they've been identifying sites over the past few years where they can actually bring those forward. Now, in a normal circumstance, you would expect people to go brownfield first, Um, But actually, you know, bearing in mind the high land value of inner London and the fact that, you know, that urban renaissance I was talking about earlier meant that an awful lot of these brownfield sites have already been snapped up or allocated to housing need. What Southwark have actually been doing is finding land that they own, um, that they don't require them, you know, to purchase. So that takes them to the green spaces on social housing estates, and this is what is at the heart of this scheme, which is hugely problematic in my view, despite the fact that I support Southwark in their aim to create more housing. And it's also a contradiction because we need green space. It's even more important now because of our... Um, desire to build densely, we need to give people spaces that they can garden in and meet in, and so on and so forth. And for biodiversity reasons. What also worries me about this, and I say this sitting in Bermondsey, if I walk to the river, the only green space I encounter is the green space that sits around council housing. There's a typical design pattern now where we build right up to the street line and and we personally are losing our sense of openness and green space and ability to see nature. And my neighbourhood is becoming increasingly grey, even though the, road, the the internal courtyards are offering green space to the community.
1: I think also just to to focus in on how how infills are defined. So infills are described as development of vacant or underutilised sites. But it seems that the residents don't see this as underutilised.
2: But it also depends on what you mean by the word used. Because, you know, actually being able to see nature, you can't prove a use for that. Having green space and trees that are actually... Um, posit- you know a, a, a sucking carbon out of the atmosphere and improving air quality. this site is you know close to, as far as I can tell, close to the Walworth Road, which is you know a heavily a busy area, busy trafficked area so So we need green space for all sorts of reasons, not just active um, active play or sort of active participation in that green space it makes us feel better we it is clinically proven that it gives us a a better um state of mind if we are around green space
1: lots of things happen in, in green spaces that don't translate well into being measurable or being, able to being put put like plugged into a spreadsheet
2: yeah and and i think that's a, that's a big issue generally you know if social a lot of the social impact and social value conversations going on at the moment. People are people who are thinking in a very sophisticated way about this saying we shouldn't have simply um decisions being made by 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 spreadsheet and by metrics because that doesn't allow you to invest in the intangible things. And this, the green space, to a certain extent it was is intangible, although I'm sure there'll be landscape architects listening to this and throwing uh, bread at uh, the, the radio or whatever they're listening to it on. It's a problem, though, for the reasons I've already said, which is Southwark are not doing this because they're malicious. They're doing it because they want to provide 11,000 new homes. And they're using the land that they own, like the garages, and around those social housing sites. But those housing sites were designed as a piece, which had landscape around them. And it isn't spare land. It is land that was deemed to be important at the point that we started to build at a greater density. And if what we seem to be doing now is building at a greater density, but without providing the type of open space and the type of amenities that we did in the 60s and 70s as we densified our housing stock. And I think it's really having an impact on on people's um, ability to use that space community cohesion. And ultimately I worry for Southwark in this because if they go against local pop- populations in the way that they seem to be set their face again, face towards at the moment in this, they get tarred with the same brush as developers do and they're going to lose their license to operate you know we need we need a license to operate to do anything in the built environment and you build that social capital and the ability to be trusted by your community um over a period of time and once it's lost it's really hard to restore
1: New London Architecture and Southwark Council have shortlisted six enormous design teams for an inclusive and low-carbon makeover of the small backstreet Bramcote Park in South Bermondsey. It's a story that's been covered by the AJ. The finalists include, brace yourself, Assemble and Local Works with Assemble Play, the engineers Webb Yates, South London Collective Bamadell Farouk and Livia with Space Hub, and John Puttick Associates with landscape firm BBUK and Heather Burrell. Ludwig Willis Architects with Jonathan Cook Landscape Architects, Esther Kalinawan and Poku Davies Studio, local firm Okra with Build Up, Hortus Collectus and OpEx, and Sanchez Benton Architects with Gabrielle Currie and Nigel Dunnett complete the shortlist. The competition asks teams to provide innovative ideas to remaster planning and transform the South London mini park into a safe, Welcoming and inclusive outdoor space that is accessible to all and shaped by the input and needs of the local community. The £550,000 project, backed by local landowners, Notting Hill Genesis and Optivo, will upgrade the green. Will upgrade the green open space at the centre of the 1990s-built Banamee and Bamco estate. The six shortlisted teams will now each receive £1,000 to develop their concepts with the residents and local stakeholders. Key aims include renewing existing play, play areas, introducing more seating and planting, and creating new connections into the surrounding neighbourhood streets. Proposals introducing low carbon and sustainable measures, such as the use of natural materials, are encouraged. So, Pat, this is a relatively small patch of green space, similar to many others around London. What do you make of councils embarking on projects like this?
2: I think it's great. But but it, it sort of links to the previous issue of green space and the sort of inherent tensions of taking some space away whilst improving the other. But I think, you know, knowing a little only a tiny bit about this, I think, you know, Southwark sees this as part of the um the Old Kent Road um opportunity area and sort of improving people's um lives as a consequence of that intensification on the Old Kent Road. So I think the money for this is coming from the Section 106 agreements uh, of the new builds along Old Kent Road. Um, And I think as a concept, improving a new park and improving the road access, the issues, the the general safety, is we need more of it.
1: What does this say about public commissioning now? So even small projects like this seem to require entrance to assemble these these huge teams. Um, is this procurement trend sustainable? Especially when you consider that, that each team gets a thousand pounds, making a total of six thousand pounds, which is then split between twenty companies. What are your thoughts on this as
2: a current trend? Commissioning is a is a big issue, regardless of whether it's how however you have to assemble because whether or whether you get uh, an honorarium or not, because there's a huge amount of intellectual property is has to be put into both time and an intellectual property put into this, and so that's my biggest worry is making sure that we have a good commissioning environment and creatives of all stripes, whether they're graphic designers or um, landscape architects or architects are respected and their intellectual property is deemed to have value not just a sort of the concept of bashing an idea out over um, the course of an action an afternoon without realizing just how much training and expertise and blood sweat and tears goes into this i would say one thing which is slightly controversial as well and some friends might kick me for this i am slightly worried about this notion this sort of increase in competitions as um almost like a publicity stunt um and 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 question without an answer where the motives come for some of these is a it, is it more about getting uh publicity for organizations is it the right way to go I don't know, there's there's a whole raft of things which I think comes down to, goes right full circle to the very first conversation we had which comes down to procurement. Thank you so much. Why can our listeners hear or f- read more about your work? Oh, I'm hopeless at this. I've had a website in production ever since I stopped running Central London Partnership. So I'm only available on Twitter or LinkedIn, Patricia London on Twitter.
1: Okay, great.
0: You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architects Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at, at Open City London, or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk/slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible, and equitable city.